The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's open with prayer and then uh, we can begin our study tonight. Father, thank you for the evening that we have together to study your word. Thank you for the, uh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God that are uh, wrapped up in these lines of scripture. Uh, I pray that you would be with us uniquely tonight, uh, just illuminating the scripture, uh, opening it up to our minds and hearts. I pray that it would have the impact on us that you want it to have. Uh, Father, we're aware of the difficulties of some of the doctrines in Romans 9 through 11, how difficult it is to understand. Pray that you would give me a special measure of clarity and all of us the uh, ability to hear from you what you would have us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in, uh, we began last week uh, to look at these magnificent chapters, Romans 9 through 11, and to continue in our study in the book of Romans. And uh, we have, uh, we just started last week, we looked at uh, the initial statement that Paul makes, and we're going to walk through more of it tonight. So I would love it if somebody could read Romans 9, uh, 1 through, uh, let's say, 24, I think. Let's find a good place, stopping place here. Yeah, 1 through 24, 9, 1 through 24. Who would like to do that? Okay. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for sake of my brothers and my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the forgiving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So that he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. All right, thank you. So, um, big picture. Uh, Romans is the clearest, most logical, most detailed unfolding of the gospel in the Bible. Uh, it is given for that purpose, to make clear what the gospel is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believes. Believe. So if you look at that, then you say, but what is the gospel? Romans is the clearest and best answer to that question. And he has been unfolding gospel doctrine to answer the question, what is the gospel, the good news of salvation through faith in Christ, for eight chapters, uh, culminating in the end of Romans 8 with the crescendo of assurance uh, that nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. A tremendous uh, statement of assurance of our salvation. Uh, there is no uh, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and there can be nothing that could separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Tremendous assurance. But as Paul often does in the book of Romans, he does even in this chapter that you heard, um, just read a moment ago, he brings up arguments against his doctrine and answers them. He does it again and again. He brings up questions or problems that individuals will have and then seeks to deal with it. Uh, I can show you many, many examples in the first eight chapters where he does that. Uh, Romans 9 through 11 is him doing that in a huge way. He is bringing up an objection uh, that somebody could, could bring uh, to uh, the doctrine of salvation. And the objection has to do with the condition, the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel, the Jews. And so what objection could be formed to the, the magnificent articulation of our assurance, uh, the great crescendo, the symbol crashes and all that at the end of Romans 8, or even all eight chapters, what objection could be raised based on the Jews? Why aren't they all believers in Christ? Okay. Why is it that the overwhelming majority of Jews are rejecting Jesus as their Messiah? They're not believing. And uh, what is the significance of that? Okay. Why would that be a pretty weighty objection, a big problem? Maybe to us Gentiles, we don't think of it as a big problem, but we should. Okay, Jesus himself was a Jew. And also God made a promise, and, uh, and it sort of is a reflection on the character of God that he would not fulfill his promise. Very much so. Uh, God is very concerned about his reputation. And I can show you that again and again in the Old Testament, how often God was concerned about his reputation. As a matter of fact, one of the most remarkable statements uh, that God ever makes is in regard to this very issue. In the book of Deuteronomy, he says what his plans are in the Song of Moses and how he is going to use the Gentiles to judge rebellious Israel and evict them from the promised land because of their wickedness. But, he says in one verse in Deuteronomy, he dreaded what the enemy would think. I don't think of God as dreading anything, do you? 
I mean, why would God dread something? This is the omnipotent God of the universe, but he's using anthropomorphic language so that we can understand his mindset, his thinking. And God was very afraid that the pagans would misunderstand the destruction of Israel and that they would think that their gods had defeated him. Was this a real threat that the pagans would think that? It's absolutely a real threat. Matter of fact, Wes and I began our study, our podcast in, uh, in Daniel. And uh, remember uh, the three uh, Hebrew youth, so-called, in Daniel 3? Uh, they're known, strangely, by their Babylonian names, which are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel is not known by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. Uh, I don't know why that is. We'll have to ask evangelicals why they remember the Babylonian names and not Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But the the thing has to do with the meaning. Mishael is who is like God. Meshach is who is like Aku. That's in your face. It's a direct in your face to the Jewish God. And if you know anything about the book of Daniel, they love to be in God's face. With the writing on the wall, they loved to take the, it was Belshazzar that took the articles from the temple and used them to, to toast the gods of wood, bronze, iron, and stone, the gods of the Babylonians. It was a, a victory of their gods over the God of Israel. And God, uh, with that anthropomorphic language, dreaded that. His reputation was at stake. But he's willing to risk it because of the great wickedness of the Jewish people and their idolatries, he couldn't put up with it and he had to punish them, he had to discipline them. But he ran the risk of being misunderstood. And a lot of the amazing stuff that happens in the book of Daniel is God, in a unique way, maintaining his reputation around the exiled Jews, showing he's a unique God, he's not like anyone else. And so he does these amazing miracles to show that there is no God like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's concerned about his reputation. And it's right for him to be concerned about his reputation because we find out in the next chapter, in in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? So how are people saved? Call on the name of the Lord. What does the word name mean? What does that word mean to you? Name. Call on the name of the Lord. What does it mean to make a name for yourself? What does that word mean in that context? To make a name for yourself? The reputation. reputation. Does God care about his reputation? Very much so. Because based on the greatness of that reputation, will individuals call on that name? If much is made of that name and they're convinced, they'll call on that name. And so therefore, God's name, his reputation matters greatly to him. He's got to make much of his name. And God, if you look in redemptive history, did a lot of things to make a great name for himself. What was it that converted Rahab the prostitute? What was it that made her cast in her lot with the Jews? The Red Sea, the destruction of Pharaoh and all that. God made a name for himself and she was drawn in by that. She definitely was of the mindset, if you can't beat him, join him. You can't beat that God. He's a great God. So God makes much of his his name, his reputation. And so has God in some way linked his name to the fate of the Jews? Very much so. His name is linked up with him. That's why he had to discipline them for their 
pagan idolatries because he that's not who he is and he had to maintain a reputation of a, of a holy god but you know fundamentally we've got a consistent problem with the jews and generation after generation that they're no different than pagans they act like pagans they think like pagans they they accepted the the religion of the canaanite nations that they defeated and they became, as we see in the book of Judges, a snare and a, and a trap and thorns in their eyes because they didn't get rid of them and they actually incorporated their religions. And it was a big part of the problem. And so God has to deal with the, the, the consistent sinfulness of the Jewish people and the fact that his name is tied up with them. Now that the gospel of Jesus Christ is going out, but Jesus himself said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews so that matters, the, the Jewish heritage matters, the, the promise made to the patriarchs matters, this whole thing. We've got a problem here. The problem is that the overwhelming majority of Bible-reading Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And now we have to go out with that message and we have to persuade the world to believe in this Jewish Messiah that his own people don't even accept. And so how do we understand that? How, how do we say that in some way God hasn't failed here, that God tried to do something with the Jews and it didn't work out, and now he's on a plan B and he's gonna try to save us Gentiles and anyone else, you know, Jews too, by Jesus. And so the problem is articulated in verse six, where he rejects it right away concerning the Jews, it is not as though God's word has failed, all right? So he's concerned about the reputation of his word. Now, I wanna just, pause and just say I'm very well aware of the doctrines and the controversies swirling around Romans 9 through 11 that have been the fodder of many debates, many divisions and disagreements and all of that. And some of you may even be here tonight hoping to see some of all that, you know, get some action on a Wednesday night, you know, I don't know. Um, so, but others could, you know, more, I would say more peace-loving people would be like, why do I have to go through this? This is so controversial and so divisive and difficult. Why would we do it? First of all, just we began a study in the book of Romans back in the year 2022, back in uh, April, I think, or March of 2022. And we're just going to keep going. So the reason we're doing Romans 9 through 11 is it follows Romans 8. All right, we're not going to skip it. It's in the Bible. We want to see what it has to say. But there are good reasons for studying these doctrines. There are good reasons for understanding the, the sovereignty themes, the uh, predestination, the election themes. There are very good reasons. There are certain benefits. But I want to see if we can try to discern what God's reasons are here. And the reason that God lays out his absolute sovereignty in salvation, there's a number of things, but the top priority, God's top priority here is his own glory in human salvation, that God would be glorified in human salvation. So he saves us this way. And how he saves us is so that he will get maximum glory, right? I don't think it's difficult to prove um, that that's a concern of God, but for those that might wonder about it, go to uh, Romans eleven thirty six. Somebody could read Romans eleven thirty six. Actually, because I love it so much, why don't you read the whole doxology thirty three through thirty six? But especially, I want to look at thirty six. For those of you that got those sheets as you walked in the door and thought that, that I'm going to be doing that tonight, um, those are just a bunch of discussion questions I wrote years ago. Um, 
enjoy the discussion questions. Uh, we'll just do whatever the spirit leads, but I'm going to just be walking through, you know, the text here. Um, so I'm sorry. Yeah, you were there, brother. Uh, all right. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Verse 36 says it, Paul says it, on behalf of God, to him be the glory forever. Would you mind reading verse 32, which I find, it's what triggered Paul's just expression of praise, his eruption of praise. Just read, just read 1132. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. That's unbelievable, and we're going to work up to that, but it's like God has made certain that everybody disobeys so that he can have mercy on everyone he saves. That's basically what the verse says. It brings him glory. So God's top priority is that. Go to the end of the, uh, end of the book, not the end of the Bible, but the end of Romans. Just turn to the end, Romans 16, and we get to read another doxology, 25 to... 20, I don't know, last verse, whatever it is, 27. Just in the interest of time, somebody just read 27. This is how the whole book of Romans ends. To the only wise God be glory through Jesus Christ, glory forever through Jesus Christ, amen. You see any similarities between 1136 and the end of the book of Romans, 1627? Yes, there's one dominant theme. God be the glory. And what does that mean, the glory of God? Well, I believe it's the radiant display of the perfections or attributes or the greatness of God, that God's on display. God is going to save sinners in such a way that he is exalted and glorified. Now, it would not be at all to his glory if his word failed. So a subset of that is he wants to prove that his word doesn't fail. He's he's concerned about his word. He wants to make certain that we know his word has not failed. Um, so along with that, uh, take a minute and look at Romans 15.9 as well. Um, Paul's talking about his ministry uh, to the Gentiles. Um, Romans 15.9, uh, 15.8 and 9. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, verse 9, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. See that? I mean, that's the point of it all, for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, mercy being their salvation. So God's top priority, and I could, I could bring out many other verses about this, most famously Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
God does everything for his own glory. So, you know, this, this is his concern. Now, again, what's the question in front of us right now? Why do we have to go through all this predestination, election, reprobation, all of these hard doctrines? God teaches them to us. We wouldn't have anything to say tonight about all this, except that God put it in his word. And if God put it in his word, he wants us to know it. Don't, don't say, why should we study this so divisive? It's because it's in the Bible. That's why you study it. If it's in the Bible, you should study it. God, God put it in there because he wants you to read it. And so, but, but I'm going beyond that and say he wants us to walk through this because it glorifies him to understand these things. It brings him glory. And that we would understand the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation is very much to his glory. Now, there are two other subordinate themes that are easy to show in Romans that are related to this whole um, this whole issue of, of difficult doctrines and double predestination and, and all of these things. All right, why, you know, why do we go through all this? What, what benefit? All right, if you look at Romans um, uh, 3.27, you go to Romans 3.27, and uh, it's really interesting. They, Paul has just gotten done talking about, I, call, I consider Romans 3.21 to 26 the glowing heart of the gospel, therefore the glowing heart of the Bible. All right? But now righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. He did it to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Glowing heart of the gospel, right there. What's the next thing he brings up? Verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, that will not exclude boasting. If we get justified by law, there's going to be boasting in heaven. That's the logic there. Law, justification by law, does not exclude boasting. It, it doesn't work to do that. It actually foments it. Romans 10, he's going to say the Jews did not submit to the righteousness that comes from God because they sought to establish their own righteousness. What does it mean to establish your own righteousness? It is ground for boasting, correct? It just is. And so therefore, after the glowing heart of the gospel, he says, where then is boasting? It's excluded. It's out. How is it out? By this gospel, this justification by faith alone, that'll do it. That'll exclude boasting. Why would that be a theme? Why is God so concerned about getting rid of boasting? Another verse, uh, next chapter, four, um, one through three. Wes, could you read that either? Romans four, one through three. shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, so it's an incredibly important statement. Abraham is an example, the pinnacle example of justification by faith alone apart from works. But what's the theme that Paul brings up there? If he was justified by works, he would have grounds for what? Boasting. 
not before God. Why does he add that? It's like, don't, don't even think that you're gonna ever boast before God. But God wants to be certain that you won't. And so he's orchestrated a salvation from beginning to end, from before the foundation of the world to the end of time that cuts out boasting, human boasting. Every aspect of it is designed to destroy human pride. It completely, dis it destroys arrogance and pride. So we study the doctrine of predestination. We study election. We study Romans 9 so that we will be humbled thereby. It is humbling. Before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand. What is that purpose? Not by works, but by, what does it say? Not by works, but by him who calls. So keeping it simple, it's not by works, but by God who calls. So the fact that he calls can be set aside for just a moment, and let's just keep it simple. Not by works, but by God. It's basically works versus God at that point. And God makes sure it's God. And so God is, is like going like a heat-seeking missile going after human pride to destroy it. He absolutely doesn't want to hear it from us in heaven in that regard. He wants us to be silenced. He wants us like Job to put our hand over our mouths in this respect so that we will not boast before him. So these doctrines are designed by God and do have the power to destroy boasting. All man-centered approaches to salvation have seeds of boasting within them. They do not have the power to destroy human arrogance the way these doctrines do. Thirdly, look at Romans, same uh, chapter, Romans 4, and verse 16. I'm gonna read that, 4.16, Romans 4.16. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses. Okay, just, all right, stop there. Very good. What translation is that? Interesting. NLT. Okay, thanks. I'll give you um, the NIV's version, and then we can listen to others. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be, by grace, it may be guaranteed, guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. So the idea of a guarantee, NLT gives us maybe certain to receive it, something like that. Or, all right. What's ESV? Guaranteed. guaranteed. All right. So let's stick with guaranteed. I like it. All right. The do these doctrines have the power to deliver a sense of guaranteed salvation to us. What do we mean by that? What's guarantee? You are guaranteed of going to heaven. What does that mean? Guaranteed. There's no doubt about it. You definitely are going to, all right. And, and you get this. It isn't just here in Romans. You can get it in, in John 6, where Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Do you get a sense of guarantee in those words? That's why they're given. Does God want you to feel guaranteed of your salvation? Absolutely, he does. Another way of talking about that is assurance. Much of the, this whole section, Romans 8, is about assurance. Romans 5 is about assurance. He wants you assured. 
He doesn't want you doubting because if you doubt, you're gonna revert to works. It happens every time. But if you trust and believe and you lean on his grace and you trust in him by faith and all that, that's where the guarantee comes. So Romans 4.16 says the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed. Faith, grace equals guarantee. Anything else, you put, like Charles Spurgeon said, if 1% of the garment of my salvation is my own thread, the whole thing unravels. I won't be able to do it. If anything's left to me, I will fail. And so do you see now the hierarchy of reasons why? This is just a defense for why should we go through this other than this, the next section of Romans. What benefits come to us from looking at the gnarly, controversial, difficult doctrines of predestination, election, reprobation, all that? First and foremost, it is much to the glory of God. It glorifies God. These doctrines glorify him. They make him a great God, a great savior, or they reveal him to be that. Secondly, they have the power to slaughter human pride in ways that man-centered views of salvation just don't. And thirdly, they have the ability to deliver assurance or guaranteed to God's people so that they'll keep trusting and not work when it comes to the forgiveness of sins. Any questions or comments about those themes and how they're wrapped into these doctrines? Comments? Yeah, I wrote, uh, I, was saying, I wrote a quote by Bodie Bauckham one time talking about the go with election or predestination, but that God holds us in his hand, that once saved, always saved, that also glorifies God, and because it depends on him. And he was just saying, you know, there's a, sometimes people have a question about whether or not we're assured of our salvation, if we can lose it. He's like, you should just realize that if you could lose it, you would lose it. There's no, there's no doubt, if you could lose it, you'd lose it. So if you're not losing it, it depends on God. Mm-hmm. That kind of speaks to that. Too. I think the more you go on in sanctification, the more you know how true that is. You know, uh, if you could lose it, you will lose it. So very, very good. Are you guys all on board? You're in for the glory of God, some, a little bit of humbling, maybe even a lot, and some assurance. All right. So let's uh, look now at the details. Last week, we looked at, at Romans 9, 1 through 5. And there, as we begin this journey about the Jews, it begins with emotion. How would we characterize Paul's emotion at the beginning of Romans 9? Anguish. Anguish. Sorrow. Overwhelming, not a little. Overwhelming sorrow. Why? Why is he filled with so much grief and sorrow? He's deeply concerned about his people. In what way? How is he concerned about them? What's he worried about? Meaning what? Right. It is Jesus that gave us the language. Uh, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus gave us that language. Is Paul concerned that that'll happen to the Jews? He absolutely is. Should we be concerned that that will happen not only to Jews, but also to lost Gentiles? Yes. We argued that last week. And we also said this is not a natural state. It is, we're the, we're, like I'm going to preach on Sunday, we're the priest and the Levite that walk by on the other side. We generally don't care. The gospel calls us to care. The gospel calls us to step toward misery, to step forward toward uh, mourning and grief, and to alleviate it. That's what we're called to do. There is, no, uh, there is no suffering greater than eternal suffering. So we should care about it. I did argue last week that all suffering, all grief over damnation is meant for this world, this present age. It's not for the next world. 
So there will not be any grief in heaven. None. Right? Because Romans 21, I mean, sorry, Revelation 21.4 precludes it. And just common sense precludes it. Doesn't make sense to go in and out of excessive joy and then excessive grief back and forth forever. But the grief is linked to people who are en route. People who are on that road to destruction that Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount. That broad road that leads to destruction. People on that, you should weep over them. If you don't, you should ask God to change your heart. You should ask God as much as possible to make you like Paul in a grief over lost people. Make you like Jesus who wept over Jerusalem. So that's what that was last week. Then he talks about the advantages and benefits of the Jews. Right, what are their advantages? He says theirs is the adoption as sons. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving the law, the temple worship, and the promises. There's are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. So what he's doing is he's zeroing in on the, the benefits of the Jews, some of them, not all of them, but many of the benefits of the Jews. Do these benefits save them from condemnation? Do they save them from going to hell? How do you know the answer to that must be no? That these benefits do not save them. It's right in the text. Look at verse 2. All right, what does verse 2 tell you? Though they have it, it's not affected their obedience or their belief. Right, and therefore Paul feels what about them? Sorrow, like we've been saying. So if they were fine with these advantages and those advantages were salvific, they saved them, then why the sorrow? Is they're missing out on a good time as Christians? No, the sorrow is because those things don't save them. You can have all of these and still go to hell. That's the, the issue. So then knowing that, then you go line by line and say, well, how is that possible? Uh, he uses language like adoption as sons, uh, et cetera. We walked through all this last time, and I don't want to spend more time on it, but they were nationally adopted as God's metaphorical son as he says to Pharaoh, I told you to let my son go, and because you didn't, I'm going to kill your son. Israel is my firstborn son. Remember, he said that. In what sense is a nation of 650,000 men, you know, several million, God's firstborn son? It's, a, it's an image, a metaphor, that, that kind of thing. But he has that level of concern over the Jewish people. I told you to let my son go, and you didn't, so I'm going to kill your son, which he did in the 10th plague. All right. So that, but that adoption, that national adoption doesn't save individual Jews. All right, and the same thing, just line by line, uh, the divine glory was the Shekinah glory, the dwelling glory that entered the tabernacle and then later the temple, the manifestation of the greatness of God right there in their midst. Other nations didn't have that. The pillar of fire, pillar of, of cloud, all that, that's amazing. Be able to see all that, that's incredible. They had that advantage. Uh, the covenants, you know, went through that, uh, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, the uh, Mosaic covenant, the Davidic co covenant. So there's are the patriarch, uh, sorry, the temple worship, um, receiving the law, sorry. Uh, so the Mosaic law, the, uh, the uh, temple worship. So the sacrificial system was a, an advantage. It was a benefit. It constantly taught them lessons about God's holiness and about substitutionary atonement, different things. There are advantages to having the temple, uh, the temple worship and uh, the promises. So many, many promises. Now, of course, those promises were not, I will save every physical descendant of Abraham. In that case, then God's word has failed. 
but they're different promises that give them a sense of the, the, uh, the, uh, the power of God. Like, I will drive out seven nations more powerful than you from the promised land. And the, the Jericho's walls falling down was a clear fulfillment of that promise. And we're told at the end of the book of uh, Joshua, not one of all the good promises God had made failed. So they have a whole heritage of God making them amazing promises that he then kept. So the promises. And then the patriarchs, so it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the essence of the cultivated olive tree, tree that he'll bring in later. A root system of God's dealing with Abraham, his dealing with Isaac, his dealing with Jacob, all those stories recorded in the book of Genesis, all of that, the patriarchs, and their, their stories and what you can learn from God, learn about God from those. They had that. They had that advantage. The patriarchs meant something to the Jews. It didn't mean anything to the Ammonites. Who are the patriarchs, would the, the Ammonites would say? We don't care about them. The Jews did, and so that mattered. Doesn't save them, though. We'll get to that in a moment. The patriarchs, and uh, from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. Is that an advantage that the Savior of the world came from your ethnic group? Huge advantage. I mean, huge advantage. What advantage was it to Palestine, to Judea, to have Jesus doing all those miracles there? And to have him come and to say concerning the Syrophoenician woman and her demon-possessed daughter, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Remember he said that? He wouldn't even talk to her. He ended up driving out the demon, but still focused on the Jews. But notice what Paul does here, and why does he do it? From them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who, by the way, is God overall forever praised. Why does he establish the deity of Christ here in this statement? And that's what I think he does. I know there's other ways to translate it, but he brings out the deity of Christ here. Why, why would he do that at this point? What's the topic that he's seeking to address here in Romans 9 through 11? Why is it the Jews are almost universally what? I'm sorry? Atheist. Atheist, all right. I was going to focus more on Jesus, okay? <laughs> let's, let's focus on Jesus. Why is it the Jews are almost universally rejecting Jesus as their Messiah? Right, but that's the topic, all right? That's the question. That's all I'm asking is why, and that's the question. So Paul says he is God. Do they believe that? Do they, do they believe in the deity of Jesus? Well, if they did, they'd be saved. They would say Jesus is Lord and they'd be saved. And so he brings that in to say, I'm going to just say it. It's almost like he's saying, you know, if there is no resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no, if there is no resurrection, but Christ has been raised. And that's what he's doing here. He's like, but Christ is God. That's what he's doing. All right, now let's roll up our sleeves. Verse six, it is not as though God's word has failed. That's what he's zealous about here. He wants you Gentile believers in Jesus to know that concerning the Jews, God's word has not failed. Why? Because it is by the word of God alone that you are going to be justified, that you're justified. It's because you heard the word and believed it. And if God's word can fail, that's like, I don't know, back in the whenever it was when people were doing this, buying a title deed to the Brooklyn Bridge. I wonder how many of those there are out there. I think it'd be pretty cool. I bet the Smithsonian has at least one title deed to the Brooklyn Bridge. You know, this is a well-known scam 
you know, or, or Deutschmarks in Germany in 1925, which were utterly worthless. Utterly worthless. There's a really million percent, uh, you know, inflation. The story of the big basket of Deutschmarks outside a bakery that took so many Deutschmarks to buy a loaf of bread. And so this woman had, a, had basketfuls of Deutschmarks and she went in to buy the bread and then came back out to get the Deutschmarks and the Deutschmarks were all still there, but the basket had been stolen. <laughs> it's like they were leaves, like they were dead leaves. Nobody wanted them. They were worthless. So if God's word can fail, so is your salvation. It's not worth anything. God's word cannot fail. God says, let there be light and there's light. When Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, he comes forth, comes alive and comes forth. That's the power of God. Romans 4, he calls, calls, gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. He has the power to call things into existence. That's the word of God. And so, no, it's not, that's not what's going on here. God has not made a promise to every individual Jewish person, descendant, physical descendant of Abraham, that they will go to heaven. He's not made that promise. That word has not failed. Why do you say that? Well, here's his reason. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. What does that mean? Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Abraham's descendants are not necessarily children of God. I read it straight from here. Okay. There it is. They're not necessarily. So he's using the word Israel in two senses in, the, in one verse here, right? Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, all right? So just because you have a genetic connection doesn't mean you're part of the second use of the word Israel. Now, what is the second use of the word Israel? It's a remnant chosen by grace, he'll say in Romans 11. And Israel within the Israel, the true Israel. Now, this relates very much to what he said earlier. If you go back to, um, to Romans 2. So look at the end of Romans 2. And someone, if somebody could read 28 and 29, 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew, there's no one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see how perfectly that fits in here? All right. There are physical Jews and there are, he would basically say true Jews, right? The true Jews are those who didn't just get circumcised physically, but they had a circumcision of the heart. That concept is mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament. Ezekiel mentions it. What is a circumcision of the heart? What does that mean? Circumcision of the heart. A heart that's saved. Okay. Do you think it would relate to, I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to obey my decrees and to keep my laws? Yes, that's what it is. So what Paul's saying in Romans 2 is just because you're you call yourself a Jew and you've been physically circumcised doesn't mean you're really a Jew. The, the real Jews, the real Israel, are those who have had a work done on them by the Spirit. That's what he says, not by the written code. So it's an internal transformation by the Spirit. It's always been like that. 
And he's going to argue that, that again and again, we see in the history of the Jews a vast population that call themselves Jews and then numbers within who truly follow God and love him. The remnant chosen by grace. It's always been like that. Very good example of this is in Ezekiel 9, I think it is, where uh, Ezekiel watches and an and angel says to another angel with a writing kit, go through the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on it on everyone who grieves and mourns over the state of idolatry here in this city. And then there's another with weapons, uh, weapons on his side. And then the one with the writing kit comes back and didn't take him long. He marked all the ones that grieved and mourned over the idolatry of the city of Jerusalem. And then he told the second angel, go kill everyone that doesn't have the mark. What is that whole vision telling you? What do you learn from that? I mean, here's the city of Jerusalem, a city of thousands, teeming thousands. And God is, he knows, the angels know, who's grieved over the idolatry of the city, which implies they have merit in the sight of God. They are pleasing to God in some sense. They're allowed to live, right? But all the others are slaughtered. Do you get the same rhythm, the same idea that we get later in, in, in Romans 11 about Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Remember all that? And he says, I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. Remember that? I'm the only one left. He said, actually, you're not. I've reserved for myself 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it is not by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. It's the same doctrine. And so in Elijah's time, there was a nation within the nation. In Ezekiel's time, a nation within the nation. All right? Uh, the 12 spies, right? The 12 spies is a clear example of the nation within the nation. You got Joshua and Caleb and you got the rest. All right, Joshua and Caleb are the true Jews. They're the only, they, they were allowed to enter the promised land. The only ones. They were the only ones of, that, of the um, military age men when the 12 spies came back that were allowed in, including Moses, but that was a different topic. All right, but Joshua and Caleb went in because their hearts were different and they trusted God, right? It's because they believed that God could enable them to win. But the 10 spies spread a bad report that the nation accepted. And they went with the 10 spies in the narrative, remember? So again and again, we can see this consistently. You've got this vast population of Jews and then you've got a, a remnant, a group within. So then now look at the verse again. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That's what he's saying. There's a, there's a true group of believers within that larger heritage of Jews. And then he keeps going. Uh, verse seven, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. He uses different words here. But again, this, it's the same idea. Uh, just because you are genetically tied, physically tied, physiologically tied to Abraham doesn't mean you're a child of God. Doesn't mean you're a child of the promise. That's the language that he uses in other places, all right? Are they all Abraham's children? On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So there's Greek words behind this. Uh, called, he uses the word called, nor because there is a sense are they all called Abraham's children. There's a calling here, and I could go into that, but just keep it simple. The calling 
has to do with a supernatural activity on God's part. You can't be born into the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. So take a minute, if you would, uh, and look at John chapter 1, and, and you can see this, this same teaching. It's just very, very powerful and important. Look at John 1. <clears throat> and this talks about the national rejection of Jesus by the Jews. Um, did someone read uh, John 1, 10 through, um, or let's say uh, yeah, 11, uh, 11 through 13. John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Wendy, what's the significance of that last articulation? Children of God, but then he goes, John goes into detail on how they became so. What does it say about that? Uh, it's, just to make sure we understand what took place uh, or what did take place, it wasn't on our own effort. It wasn't because we were born into God's family. Can you read the three things he says in verse 13 again so in your translation? We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It is unbelievable how, how much that harmonizes with Romans 9. It's not the will of man. He's going to say that later. It's not the man who wills or the man who runs, but God who has mercy. He's going to say that later. But the first thing he says in verse 13 is not of blood. What does that mean, not of blood? They're born not of blood. What does it mean to be born but not of blood? Not all of, you know, Abraham's offspring are true Israel. It's just you can be part of family but not the family of God. Right. So the word blood, I think, has to do with uh, genealogy, do you think? Like of the, the same blood, where the same blood means we're, re we're relatives. And he's saying that isn't going to get you in the kingdom. The born of blood doesn't save you. you. You're not a child of God, which is what he says. As many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. So real issue, friends, it's not so much, am I a child of Abraham? Clearly, because of how this whole thing's working, that means, am I a child of God? Abraham represents, being a child, being in Abraham's family uh, represents then being in God's family, being a child of God. And what John 1.13 is telling us, that cannot happen by normal means. It happens by supernormal or supernatural means. It happens by the working of the Spirit. And so just because you are, I go back to Romans 9, um, nor because there is descendants, are, are they all Abraham's children? On the contrary, it is through Isaac the offspring will be reckoned. Okay, so this idea of reckoning is uh, of being, being um, um, named or, or considered that way. It's thought that way, like, uh, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's a crediting thing. So that's God thinks of you this way. So what's amazing for us now, just cutting to the chase, for us Gentile believers in Jesus, we're reckoned Abraham's children. We're considered that way by God. It's, it's really awesome. 
It's better than getting an honorary doctorate that you can frame and put on your office wall. I mean, I'm not sure you know how much honor there is in an honorary doctorate, but people get them and it's important. But it's even better to be an honorary child of Abraham. And so that's what it means. That not because you're genetically, uh, but because of um, the working of God. It is through Isaac the offspring will you reckon. Now what's going on? All right, we know, you know the story. Abraham, this one father, had two sons, all right? And who were they? Isaac and Jacob. Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael first, and then Isaac. Now, how did Ishmael come about? Genesis 16, how did that whole thing, how did Abraham have a son named Ishmael? Through unbelief, okay, so what happened? Didn't believe the promise. The child, and so they started to come up with a good idea that they thought was a good idea, a way for them to fulfill God's promise. So they're trying to help God out. Is that a good thing to try to help God out? Accelerate the process. Reminds me of John seven when when Jesus's brothers ask if he's going up to the feast, and he says he's not going to the feast. And then one of his brothers comes alongside and gives him some advice. He says, no one wants to become a public figure, acts in secret. I mean, since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. What's he doing? He's just giving some, Jesus some advice. <laughs> some PR advice. Like, can, you know, I can picture him putting an arm around, around Jesus, much like Peter taking Jesus aside privately to rebuke him when he said he was going to die, remember? So the idea of giving, giving Jesus some, some advice. And then it says in John 7, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. In other words, when you try to give Jesus advice, you don't believe in him. All right, not sufficiently anyway, because you don't seem to understand who he is. It is by his mind and his power that the entire universe was made. What advice can you give him? That's what Romans 11 says. Who has ever been God's counselor to give him any advice? You didn't have any. So now we go back to Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarai at that point. And they're like, look, this isn't happening. It's been a long time. It's been 13 years. And she continues barren, right? He believes the promise, but that doesn't seem like that's happening. And she's getting probably, I mean, she's definitely very old at this point. All right, she's past age and he's getting old. And just like you said, they wanted to help God out, but it was through unbelief. And so the custom back then is you could do this kind of thing if you had a servant, a maid servant, that, you know, she would kind of stand in for the wife kind of thing. I mean, most of us would call it simple adultery, all right? But that's how they did back then. And you had the same problem with Jacob's family and all that with the four, four different wives and children that came from each of them. And they didn't seem, in my opinion, to be a very cohesive family. Do you get a sense of that? The, the 12 tribes, you know, they're not cohesive. But, you know, but it goes back to Abram and Sarai, and Ishmael comes. And what's really amazing is, in, in Genesis 17, God sets him to rights. Ishmael's been born, and he comes, and the first thing God says to him is, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be holy. What do you think God's saying by that? Hey, what just happened in chapter 16, that was bad. Right? Gives him the covenant of circumcision and then is very clear that Sarah, who he renames, Abraham and Sarah in that chapter, Sarah is going to have a son. And it is through, 
through, through Sarah's son that your offspring are going to be named. And you know what Abraham does at that moment? Oh, if only Ishmael could live before you. He said that in Genesis 17. He's still rooting for Ishmael. It's really interesting because Isaac was rooting for Esau. Isn't that fascinating how Abraham was rooting for Ishmael and Isaac was rooting for Esau? But neither one of them were the child of the promise. Neither one of them were the supernatural child. See what I'm saying? And so this first case is just because Abraham is your father doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Now, most of the Jews would have said amen about Ishmael's descendants, right? They knew what happened. They knew that when Isaac was born, he mocked and he was cast out and, and that whole thing. And there's a lot of hostility then between the you know, descendants of, of, uh, of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael and all that. So uh, at least the point has been made, just having Abraham as your father doesn't save you. But they're going to raise an objection, aren't they? They say, well, of course, that, was, that whole thing was messed up. That whole thing was messed up. All right? Sarah was the issue, right? He's like, yeah, don't, don't start with me on that, Paul would say. Let's take the next generation. In this case, Rebecca had two sons with the same father. Same mother, same father. But it's through Jacob and not Esau that the lineage is named. They're twins. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So that's the whole point. It's like, all right, that just takes that whole, yeah, different mother thing off the table. Just because you have Abraham as your father doesn't make you saved in the case of Ishmael. Okay, fine. Just because you have the same mother and father doesn't make you saved either. It is through Isaac, not Esau or Jacob, not Esau, the, the, the covenant line. Just as he said in uh, Malachi, I believe, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Um, I think we're done. I'm sorry. So you can come and ask, ask me privately. Um, but let's, uh, let's finish. Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, it also talks about the reckoning where there's a child in the main servant who's mocking the situation. And, and he says um, it talks about where they will be reckoned and they would be blessed. Okay, thanks. Andy Wynn, would you close us in prayer? Thanks. Father, thank you for your word. And it's perfect. And we ask, Lord, can you give us a uh, just a desire to study your word and be even more confident of the things you have done so that you would receive the glory, so that we would be humble, and Lord, that, that you know, the gospel could be proclaimed. So thank you so much for tonight. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.